Transforming Bodies, a judgment-free zone where Trish answers all your burning questions about aesthetics procedures. Find out what and who is the latest and greatest and gain clarity on what options are out there to leave you feeling good in your body. Hello listeners, it's Trish Hammond here from the Transforming Bodies podcast and today we're, um, I'm speaking with Dr. Sean Paul. Now he's based all over the other side of the world in Austin, Texas and he's an ocular plastic surgeon and today we're going to talk about first of all what it is, what he does and why he does the treatments that he does. So welcome Dr. Paul. Hey Trish, thanks for having me. Oh thanks so much for um, joining us. I, I met you at the recent Rockstars event in as actually Rockstars of Aesthetics. I better get that right. Hey, otherwise they'll think we're in a heavy metal band or something. But um, yeah, that Rockstars of Aesthetics in Brisbane, Australia. And I listened to your talk and I was blown away. So I'm really excited to have you on this podcast. So I really, really appreciate it. Um, but yeah. tell us. So first of all, like, what is an oculoplastic surgeon? How did you get started? Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'll kind of um, be happy to talk about what an oculoplastic surgeon is. And I think this is a really good question because uh, even I hadn't heard of what an oculoplastic surgeon was until I went through my medical training. But kind of to break it down, there's multiple pathways into plastic surgery or aesthetic surgery. And my pathway was through the eyes. And so as I went through my medical school training, I was very interested in plastic surgery. I was also interested in ophthalmology. I was very fortunate to do some of, my, some of my medical school training at a military hospital in Texas, and uh, I was able to learn from patients who had had severe burns on their eyes and their face, and um, I was able to learn how we could rehabilitate their vision by improving the surface of the underside of their eyelids as well as the burns on their face, and so that really got me interested in the holistic and functional aspects of treating the vision of my patients, but also the aesthetic uh, components of that as well. And so oculoplastic surgery, essentially you go to medical school and resident, you go to medical school, then you follow up with a residency in ophthalmology, and then you do a two-year fellowship. So that's two committed years to eyelid, orbital, and facial surgery. So everything around the eyes and all the way across the face, as well as the deeper structures uh, behind the eye. Okay, so so when would, like, are you talking like in the, uh, like, I know this sounds like a really bad question, but like to do with inside the eye or on the outside as well? Because obviously you do aesthetic procedures as well. So is it both? Yeah, so it's kind of both. So we actually don't typically, some do, but some, we're typically not working inside the eyeball, like a cataract surgeon or a glaucoma surgeon. Instead, we work on the tissues around the eyes. So that would be uh, fatty tissue that can make the eyes look bulgy or broken bones around the eye. Those are areas that um, we really focus on during our functional academic training. And then we spend a lot of our time focusing on the aesthetics and functions of eyelid, brows, and cheek. And that's where I spend most of my time currently. Okay. And so if someone was to, to want a facelift, is that something that you would do? So we're trained to do facelifts. Um, I would still say that most oculoplastic surgeons focus on aesthetic and functional procedures from the brow down to the cheek. And so I, I kind of leave that those bigger procedures to my colleagues who've done face uh, a, a facial plastics fellowship or general plastics fellowship. And I think that's just because I really like being a super specialist around the eyes. Yep. Yep. And one of the things I love is the fact that you actually use non-surgical, um, you, you do non-surgical treatments and procedures as well, because obviously that's what people are looking for as well. How do you yeah. 
com combine that? Because you've got a, a massive clinic there in Austin from, from what I can see online, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, what we found in the last 10 to 15 years is that patients are seeking um, non-filler, non-toxin, more energy-based devices to contour tissue. I think that like with any new treatment that's out on the market, we really focus on safety and efficacy. We also focus on enhancing our surgical results by using the energy. So whether it's laser treatments or RF treatments or ultrasound treatments, we have a lot of different options for our patients. And a lot of times patients just aren't ready to go through the surgical downtime and really may not even need a surgical result. So our job is to help really focus on the skin. I think that all those different modalities do a great job of that. Mm -hmm. Yep. That, that's so true. And, and people can kind of walk away with getting the big things done and the small things done, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, you can, you can do the most beautiful blepharoplasty or eyelid lift surgery or lower eye bag surgery in the world, but if the skin doesn't look very good, you've really done a disservice. And so I really try to focus on a really natural approach. A lot of time that invo involves uh, minimally invasive. And if we talk about what like the definition of minimally invasive means is there's no excisional surgery or nothing's being cut out. And so if you're using lasers, um, you're really resurfacing the top layer of the skin. Um, if you're using a radio frequency or ultrasound, you're going to some of the deeper tissues. And there are some other devices that go even deeper. And I think that's really nice to have that option to either enhance your surgical results or give patients a non-surgical option if they're an appropriate candidate. Okay. And so part of the procedures that you do, so you do like an upper lid blef and a lower lid blef. How, because over, over here in Australia, um, like, like a, I, I believe a, a GP can, can do um, a blef. Well, that's how it used to be anyway. But why would someone, like, I mean, it makes sense to me, but why would someone... One who wants to have an upper and lower blef, they would go to someone who's got that aesthetic kind of eye as well as functional, of course. So can you tell us a little bit about like that? Like why you would, like, why would I choose to go to an oculoplastic surgeon to get my upper and lower blef over and above going to someone who's say, you know, a GP that does blepharoplasty? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. You know, I'm a consumer just as many of the listeners are and as you are as well. And I think that we all agree that expertise is invaluable. You want someone who is very familiar with the anatomy and variations of anatomy of one specific area. You know, we, we value, we value expertise, but we value quality. Um, and we, and we value consistency. And I think it's so, so, so important to understand that, you know, I've spent my, my life devoted to eyelids and, um, you know, not only my medical training, but the first 10 years of my career, I mean, this is all I've been doing. And so, um, when you, when you do a lot of one thing, you know, I think it, I think it just pays dividends for the patient to go with someone who's a niche niche doctor, someone who's really an expert in one area. And I think, um, that's what I make my primary Libby doing is eyelid surgery. And so I always put my, put myself in the shoes of the person across from me. And I think the number one and number two questions I get as a surgeon are how many of these procedures have you done? And secondly, um, you know, I, they'll basically want to see pictures before and after. So those are key questions to ask any surgeon or any expert, you know, if you're going for um, legal advice, you want to go to someone who's an expert in a certain thing, whether it's a contract or whether it's, you know, um, I don't know, real estate law, whatever yeah. you're interested in, yep. you want to go to some expert. And I firmly believe um, not only a GP, but a general plastics or even a facial plastics, 
they all would probably agree they could all do a good job doing it, but it may not be the first thing that's on their mind. The first thing on my mind and the last thing on my mind is eyelids. And that's it's just because I love it. I'm also passionate about it. And I've seen a lot of different anatomy. I can clearly run off all the risk benefits and alternatives to surgery. And I think it's just, it takes time. You don't, it doesn't happen overnight. It just takes a lot of time and focus to be an expert. Yeah, cool. I, I agree totally. I'm, I'm all about the, you know, like I know that a lot of surgeons can do a lot of things, but I think everybody kind of specializes in, they're passionate about one particular procedure or a couple of different procedures. And that's what they're actually like really, really good at as well. I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, so tell me, so the upper lid and the lower lid, because I know that the lower lid is something completely different. Hey, so if someone was having a lower blef, blef, like is the recovery time different? Is it like, is it a much bigger deal? The reason I'm asking this as well is because my husband himself is like, oh God, I've got, uh, he's got those fatty pads under the eyes that kind of really, um, I mean, he hates them and he's not into aesthetic stuff as well, but he's actually seriously considering getting it done. Yeah, you know, I think, Facial surgery is different than other parts of the body because we all feel the pressure if you're having anything on your face. I mean, if you and I have a an, a little um, pimple on our face, we feel frustrated, right? Because it's just right yeah. right for everyone to see. Yeah. Um, and then hiding it. So I think I, I equate it to functional downtime, which is can I do my day-to-day activity? Are my eyes going to be too swollen? That's one part of it. I think the second part of it is uh, aesthetic downtime when it comes to Am I going to be able to go out to a dinner party or go meet friends and not feel super awkward? Um, Traditionally, with upper eyelid surgery, there's going to be an incision um, about six to 10 millimeters above the eyelashes that's typically hidden very well. And so that surgery hides nicely. And also the swelling on that area typically only lasts about three to five days. And so by about a week to 10 days, you're feeling pretty good. You're just going to be puffy and have some small visible lines of surgery that typically fade away over the next few months. And you can cover up with makeup at two weeks, which is helpful for anyone or even a a tinted sunscreen as well. So that's the upper area. When you talk about the lower lids, um, the anatomy is different. There's also a difference in the way the lymphatics drain in that area. And in general, people just tend to swell in in the lower eyelids and middle of the face just because of the way the anatomy sits. And so we really make a focus for our patients to be prepared for that. And the swelling can take a little bit longer, but still in general, you're looking at about two weeks of total social downtime and it can vary. You know, some patients are bruisers and some are not bruisers, as we all know, if, if we've had cosmetic yeah. other patients or have gotten into a, a scuffle, you know, some of us bruise badly and some don't. And also it depends on what kind of medications you're on and other things like that. So, you know, I typically tell yeah. patients about about 10 to 14 days of downtime. And then as long as you're comfortable going back into work or wherever else, you should be totally fine. Uh, What's been really nice is so many of my, my patients are remote workers via zoom or other things now where they just turn their camera off, you know, starting, you know, I I would definitely recommend about four to five days of taking it easy just because we want you to cover as quickly as possible. And then after that, they may be with the camera off for a little bit or not seeing clients for another week. Then they're back to their routine. So there's really no perfect time to do the surgery. It's just a matter of if you're a correct surgical candidate. And um, that's what we really pride ourselves on at our practice as our, as our super specialists in our group. And for me, being the eyelid guy, I like that I can coach my patients through that process. Yep, yep. And it's really quite mind or to me, it's really quite mind-blowing the difference uh, in someone, because I've, of course, stalked your website, but seeing the yep. difference of someone who's had the, like the, lower 
eye surgery, like those results are astounding. Like there's no doubt about it. And what's so crazy about the lower lids is I have patients to say, oh, they just popped up in the last year. And then they go back and look at photos. And, you know, the, the big thing about lower eyelid fat pads or, or, or swelling is it's just most of the time it's genetic. And what's really nice if the surgery is done correctly is the results can last a very long time, 10, 20, 30 years. So their investment for a procedure for a very specific thing that bothers them is just really high. You know, they're not having to come for repeat treatments. They're not having to come for a secondary surgery. Uh, if they lose a ton of weight, they might have some show of the fullness. And um, but overall, they're really happy. So that's again, maybe I'm just selfish as a surgeon. I like doing things that make my patients happy, you know. And I, I feel like lower lid surgery and upper lid patients make my patients very happy. Um, I've done I've done I've done enough surgery and seen enough surgery from other people where I know. The, the things I do want to do and things I want to avoid. And so I can educate them. And I would say nine times out of 10, the patient and I are a good fit. And then one times out of 10 is not. And I just tell them, Hey, there's a lot of good surgeons out there. I just really recommend you go to a specialist that, that's going to help you the best. That's true. Cause you do got to have that connection with your patient and, and vice versa as well. You have to have that, that connection and know that you're going to, you know, help them to achieve the, uh, as a patient, as sorry, as a practitioner, I guess you have to, know that you're going to help them to achieve the results they want and as a patient I guess you have to find that surgeon that resonates with with what you want and kind of like because I've gone and booked in for surgery and said I want this and the and the doctor said to me no 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 like I had a nose job and I said like I want that little Aussie upturned nose and he's like uh I'm not going to do that for you because you know you've got a Roman nose you're obviously you know of that sort of background but I I will make your nose a better shape and get rid of that bump on top and I'm so glad he did because I've seen people that have actually gone in and obviously said, I, I want this and they've got exactly what they asked for, but it wasn't right for their face. So you have to look at the whole person. Hey. Yeah. I mean, you have to look at the whole person and I'll tell you like the personality fit is so critical. Like you, this is someone that's going to be, you're going to be going through the post-operative period with, you're going to get to know them for the next three to six months to 12 months and it's just like, if you're, you know, looking for a business partner or you're dating or something, if it's just not the right fit, it's okay. And the thing yeah. is you have choices, the surgeons have choices too. And sometimes if you don't see eye to eye on me being able to meet your expectations, then it's okay to get a second opinion. That's totally reasonable. And, you know, and I think there's, there's so many people that can benefit from these procedures. And I think as, this, as even as a patient myself, I mean, I would want to go to someone who just does a lot of uh, one thing that's very niche. And I think that's what makes sense to me. And I wouldn't want to go to a jack of all trades. It does a little bit of everything. Again, yep. again that's, that's personality. Yep. Yep. That That's exactly how I, I feel as well. Um, so I was going to ask you, so, you know, you, do you do things like brow lifts and stuff like that? Cause that's all kind of like up that same area or is that something, or you would specifically eyes? No, so brows are the most underdone surgery around the eyes because if you really come in, let's say you have three people come in that say they have droopy eyelids, 2.5 out of three of those people are going to have a droopy brow at the same time. And so they're going to think that they have extra skin or their eyelashes are too low, but a lot of times it's the brow. And a lot of times you'll the telltale signs of someone having brow ptosis or heaviness of the brow is they're using their forehead to lift it up. So they hate when they get toxin injected in their forehead because it feels too heavy. That's one. Uh, two, they'll have wrinkles on their forehead that are really over-accentuated because they're trying to lift everything away. 
And the other thing that you'll notice as well um, with these patients is they, they'll, they'll grab the tissue right around the brow and say they have heavy eyelids when in fact it's the brow that's falling. And the reason the brow is falling is there's just there's laxity and descent of the fat that sits behind the brow. And there's also a uh, laxity of the skin tissue and laxity of the muscle and kind of everything deeper to the brow and all the way down to the bone that causes that forehead to be heavier. Um, so I do a ton of brow surgery in conjunction with upper eyelid surgery. It's very, very rare. I do eyelid surgery by itself. Although for all, you know, for, for basic nomenclature standpoint, yeah, it's all kind of called upper blepharoplasty or an upper lid lift, but you know, there is a little bit of a fear with patients on an overlook, overdone look or a surprise look with the forehead lift or a brow lift. And so my preferred technique is more of a minimally invasive approach through the incisions in the brow, as opposed to going to the forehead line, which is a little bit different, but at least my patients with less scarring, I think they get a strong result, but doesn't, that doesn't look overdone. And if you go to my website at austinfacingbody.com, you'll see a ton of my patients who have that. And the last thing you want to do is force the tissue in a weird direction to look overdone. And you have to really show before and after pictures of patients to help, help them understand why it's important. Cause the worst thing you can do is take out too much eyelid skin underneath the brow and the patients have problems with closing their eye. And that's a big fear of patients. And so we just really don't want to do that. And I think that's why it's so important to know your brow anatomy, forehead anatomy, and your eyelid anatomy. So as much as I want to be a specialist with the eyelids only, I have to know the upper face. Of course, <laughs> of course. And one thing, I, I noticed that you do um, broadband light or, or BBL and, and like under the, like for people that, like under the eyes, is that right? Because it just, just the thought of that freaks me out, but I've seen the results and it's actually quite mind blowing and it looks like it doesn't even hurt anyway. Yeah. So there have been a lot of, there's been a lot of research done on the use of intense pulse light or BBL is one of the brand names and um, that, and that decreases rosacea around the eyelids and there's specific condition called ocular rosacea. There's also um, inflammation that can cause dry eyes by the glands being too clogged and IPL is used to treat that area. And so that is definitely a treatment we use as an adjunct for patients who want to come in just for that treatment alone, or as a treatment in conjunction with the, um, with surgical procedures we're doing. So this is a non-surgical approach to improve the dryness on the eyes without using drops, which is really nice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it, does it kind of like, like, is it, is it useful? Does it make you a bit more youthful? Do you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. what does it actually do? Like, so it, so it actually decreases inflammation so your eyes um, just function oh, better. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so the youthfulness... Gets rid of the puffy. Oh, sorry. Sorry, gets rid of the puffy kind the of thing. Puffiness. It's more that the, the the oil glands on the eyelid that put oil onto your eye are clogged up. And so if you use the BBL or the IPL to decrease the inflammation, their eyes feel better. That's the functional benefit. There's no benefit on the wrinkle side. And that's typically why we add a, a laser resurfacing at the same time. Now you can do that entire treatment of the IPL or the BBL, not only around the eyes, but on the nose and the cheeks. And that can help with the rosiatic changes or the redness changes. And we typically have patients come in three to four times a year for maintenance with that. There's functional benefit. Their eyes feel better. The tears are better on the eye. Their eyes don't look as red. Those are major benefits. And then we also get those patients uh, many times off of eye drops as well. So there's a major functional benefit. And many times our patients just 
if they're getting that treatment done, want to also treat the rest of the face because they're going to obviously have potentially other browns, reds, uh, aging signs on the face. The, and, and they'll get the full face or even neck done or other areas as well. Because typically we'll do eyes, face, neck, and even arms and chest and decollete, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's remarkable is that um, there's no downtime. I mean, the, you have to be out of the sun a little bit before and a little bit afterwards, but there's no visible sign of a, of a procedure being done, which our patients really appreciate. Oh, totally, totally. Um, and I was going to ask you about, because I noticed that you do tear, teardrop fillers. Is that something that, that you that you do yourself or or would someone else in the clinic do that? So teardrop filler is really interesting. It was very popular in the 2010s and then even as even as late as you know last year. And then what we're seeing now is we're seeing um, the different fillers are all just lasting a little bit longer than advertised. And so I tend to actually see the opposite problem. I see I see too much filler placed into the tear trough. So I'm having to dissolve so much filler these days. It's completely changed the way we practice aesthetics. And Austin, Texas is, is very similar to London or to Beverly Hills or New York. And that we have a lot of patients who um, are getting treatments like that done. And so we're seeing a different issue. Now, tear trough filler, if done appropriately in small areas, I think is, is can look amazing. The risk for the patient is that it looks too puffy or if they weren't the right candidate to get it done. In our practice, all the surgeons do the injections themselves and state by state in the United States, there are different rules on who can do the injections. But in our practice, yes, I do my own injections. Yeah, right. And, you know, I'd never heard of this um, before, but that's before I looked at your website. (laughs) But what, because I noticed that you do canthoplasty and it's actually something I, I believe that you're like that you're you're passionate about as well um first of all am i right and number two like what is canthoplasty so someone is got really really small eyes and want them to look larger and and bigger can you tell us a bit about that because i didn't even know that this was possible to be honest so it's another hot topic because canthoplasty and canthopexy are two different adjuncts that can be added into lower eyelid surgery so if you're doing a lower lid blepharoplasty, which is removing or improving the bag appearance of bags underneath the eye, um, depending on the anatomy, you may want to tighten the outside corner of the eye. Now, I am a huge proponent of do not disturb the canthus. And the canthus is technically where the upper lid and the lower lid meet out toward the corner on the outside of the eye. That's called the lateral canthus. There's another canthus side corner of our eye. Some patients, and we know these are very trending procedures because they want to change the appearance of their eye, they want that entire canthus, basically the entire thing lifted and moved up. And that's the quote unquote fox eye. And there's other, you know, animal nomenclatures out there that are popular right now. Mm -hmm. So that's more of a true aesthetic change in appearance. A traditional canthopaxy or canthoplasty is when you're going to tighten the ligament that's keeping the lower lid in place back to the corner. And it's just basically the surgeon's choice after discussion with the patient on where they want it to sit. Most patients don't want it moved. They just want the lid tighter. So the lid doesn't basically migrate down toward the cheek, which makes a lot of sense. You don't want to have an aesthetic surgery done and the lid's not tightened. Many of my younger patients don't need it touched at all. They don't need to move that canthus whatsoever because their lids are youthful and there's a lot of good spring to the, the canthus already. So they don't need to change that at all. 
an aesthetic canthoplasty, if you look at pictures of Kylie Jenner, if you look at other, other like a Ariana Grande, you're going to see the way their eyes slope. So there's different tilts. There's a positive tilt. There's a negative tilt. If you look at Marilyn Monroe's picture, she actually sat a little bit lower on the canthus and that was really great looking. And then there's younger other people like Ariana Grande who have kind of an upper tilt. So it really depends on your aesthetic. What's wild is that you if you have patients pulling what their goal is, it's really nice to have the pictures face-to-face -face with their patients and their desired result with the patient's picture and the desired results picture up next to each other. And you'll realize that patients may not necessarily understand what that means. And you don't want to make a deforming change to a patient without that healthy discussion. Again, like I'd mentioned to start, the canthus is such an important area anatomically uh, to keep the eye in good position, to help close the eye. Um, you, it's something you, I really take to heart. And we do do that procedure many times as a combined procedure, if needed with lower lid surgery. It's just those younger patients who are desiring a different look. It just takes a lot more of a great patient doctor relationship to, before we, before we decide to proceed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Cause I, uh, by understand, I hadn't realized that there was a name for that area there because when I put my <laughs> eyeliner on, you know, the eyeliner with the little wings and all that, as you get um, older, it kind of drops a bit there so that's obviously the little area that you're talking about like just at the yep. right the lateral i totally get it now so now i know that that's called a cancer i'll remember that from now on yeah canthus basically canthus. the of the upper lid and lower lid uh -huh. and you know many women that think that they need a little bit of a tuck or a little bit of a lift out there because they don't like with the way that skin is sagging it's my job to educate them and that's why they pay to come see me so i can give them a good consultation to help them make the best decision on Will surgery fix the issue? Will energy with lasers and RF or other treatments fix the issue? Or is there not an alternative and we have to live with it? And do we focus on skincare and other things? And, and, yep. and again, it really depends on age. It's really important to understand if they've had surgery or even had a trauma before. Those play a lot of factors into that, into that decision-making process. Yep. And most importantly, is this something that's trending that may look good now, but they may not like afterwards? Mm -hmm. And then- damage can you cause if you move something out of position and it's anatomically not in the right position and can you have a functional problem that those are those are those are important things to address yeah of course and uh, you know it's so funny because i've often wondered what because kylie does look very different to her old photos and i i didn't kind of get how she changed so much around that area and so that obviously makes so much sense now so the little the the yeah has been lifted up a bit. okay got it and, and i'm not that they've had i'm not their i'm not their surgeon i haven't done i haven't i don't yeah, i haven't studied their pictures extensively i yeah. just know those are pictures that get those are pictures that get shown to me for my patients and um again go look at marilyn monroe's pictures and we can all agree she looked a certain way and of course there's rumors that she had other surgeries around her around her face um and you always want to kind of look at like where the outside corner fits you know during our medical oculoplastics training, we're trained to raise it up about a millimeter or two higher than the outside corner horizontal to the middle of the eye to keep a little bit of an upturn. But people genetically sometimes have lower set eyes or downturn eyes, and they do not look terrible. It's just, you want to make sure the facial shape matches. You don't want an upturned eye that looks way overdone or anatomically can cross problems in these patients. Yep. Yep. Totally. And, you know, in, um, sorry, I could talk to you all day, but uh, I'll, up, but I, I wanted to ask you, in America, it's slightly different to what, or very different actually to what it is in Australia. So you can actually do a lot of these procedures in clinic 
under local, is that right? Yep. So upper lid surgeries, some brow surgeries are very commonly done under local anesthesia and maybe slight sedation, oral sedation, but usually under local anesthesia in the right candidates. And I think that's, again, another important discussion. So as a patient, you want to feel a certain way, have a certain experience when you're having a procedure done. There's obviously costs outside the surgeon's fee, whether it's you're using a surgery center or a, or a clinic or what, whatever it may be. Uh, medication costs, nurse, nursing costs, all those things start mm -hmm. to kind of pop up. And so, you know, I think the more and more I've gone through things, I think the best patient experience isn't always local anesthesia only. I think you might want to make sure they, they feel like they can get relaxed during the procedure. We never want to stress the procedure for the patient at all. And um, while it may be easy to do the procedure under local anesthesia, I think sometimes patient experience is, is just as important. And, and I want my patients to feel comfortable. So it's always an offering for our patients if they desire to do it without like an IV or they don't want to do it with general anesthesia. You typically don't need general anesthesia for an upper blepharoplasty alone. Um, lower blepharoplasty is a little bit different. You definitely would want like a deeper IV sedation or, or, um, or a general anesthetic just to get them comfortable because those tissues underneath the eyes are a lot different. The anatomy is, um, is, is unique and you want the patient still and you want to be able to do what you need to do to make sure their lower eyelid down to the cheek looks really nice and filled. Another nice thing about all these procedures is you can add the minimally invasive uh, laser procedures or RF procedures at the same time, and they have the downtime altogether. Yep. Yep. So if someone was having a lower bleph and ablative procedure, would they be out of action? Because I know the upper bleph, you can just go back to work straight away. I worked with a girl when she did that, and she just looked like she had mascara on. Um, yep like she came back to work the very next day, but the lower bleph and, and say some fresh stuff, would that be like a week out of action, like a week off so that you I, could walk out and I not would, look like you've had something done? Yeah. I would say in general for lower blepharoplasty, you know, the first five days are rough and then it starts to get better about day six. And so yep. my patients be back to some sort of work by day seven or eight. I think that's reasonable. And then to really feel like they've not had much done, I would say day 14, but the key part with all my patients and any patients out there that have a lower eyelid surgery is um, is bruising and swelling. It just takes a little bit more time in that area. But yes. patients are back to their routine by two to three weeks at the absolute latest. Yep, yep, that's pretty so, good. That's pretty good. Two weeks, two weeks. And so during our upcoming holiday season, obviously very busy time because people block these kinds of procedures when they have long weekends or vacation time. And I think that's a nice way to, to do it. So we stay busy up until about February here in the States. And then we, we see a little bit of a quieter time. Yep. That's so funny. I've got two family members that they have to have um, surgery and that's when they've booked it for over the Christmas time. So they can, they have the time off, they can be at home. They're not going to be out there. So it's actually a really good time coming up now yeah. to have your surgery, I think. I agree wholeheartedly. Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, I've got to say that's been so interesting. I could actually seriously talk to you a whole lot longer, but I know that um, it's really late there for you and I really appreciate your time. So austinfaceandbody.com. If um, you want to check out the website, I've had so much fun on your website. And by the way, I did look at the before and after pictures of Marilyn Monroe and I, uh, and it's actually quite mind blowing when you look at it. <laughs> I would never have, never have known. I just thought it was makeup, but now that I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. She does look totally different. Yeah. And that's where I want to mention, like, if she, if she's a classic beauty, which I think all of us agree, there's some level of that. And she was born in 1926. I mean, yeah. can you imagine what it's going to be 40 years from now? Like what's yeah. the trend? 
And so I think, you know, there's so much beauty within ourselves and we all do not look the same. We all have ethnic mixes that are different. Our backgrounds are all different. And just because something is flashy on social media or flashy on in the tabloids, like it may not be the right choice for you. And also I think it just, it teaches our youth to be really prideful of the way they look and feel good. So they don't have to change their bodies. I think it's so mm-hmm. important to educate. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And, and even here in Australia, we've, um, they've introduced a, um, I guess like a, a like, a, like a, not a body, like a, I guess like a questionnaire or, a, or a, like a bit of a, you know, body kind of questionnaire so that um, we, we don't get people just, you know, randomly just, I don't know, just body dysmorphia is a huge thing. And I guess, you know, it's about protecting people, it's about protecting us from ourselves, really. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we're in such a unique position that we can really change this way this person feels the rest of their life. So I just take a lot of, I take it very seriously. And, you know, I have children. I want to make sure that they are, you know, counseled appropriately, no matter what the issue. And if someone's concerned about something on their face or wherever it is, and, you know, and, and they go to a surgeon, like we just have to take it extremely seriously. And so I just love what I do. I love that I can impact someone and I can talk them out of surgery and, or I can help them make a decision. I mean, I really want to make sure that they're choosing the best thing for themselves. Exactly. And, you know, speaking from a personal level as well, I know exactly um, what you mean because I have been that, that person who was unhappy with the things about myself that, um, that I've changed slightly or felt and feel better about now. And, and I've got the confidence that I never had, when I was younger, just because of a couple of little things that although, you know, people think, oh, you know, you don't need anything, you know, your nose is fine. But if it's not fine to you, like people can say as much as they want, it's not about what you think my nose is like. It's about how I feel about myself. And and um, so I'm all about, you know, body positivity. And if you, if, you know, if you, you know, if, if there's something that's really causing you anxiety and grief, it's just amazing, you know, the res- you can achieve the result that you want just by having a, you know, a procedure done as well. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit pro, <laughs> I guess, for want of a better, a better word, um, you know, it's, it's your body, your decision. Yeah. And I think you know, just if you can, you know, whether it's a younger person, family members are involved in discussion, it's really just making sure you're on the same page and, and that you guys both have the same goals. Cause many times patients, as you mentioned with body dysmorphia, they're, hopes and dreams are completely not aligned with reality. And so that's one type of patient. And then there's another patient who's really spent a lot of time thinking about it. And now they are ready to proceed. They've obviously thought about it and prayed about it or seen multiple people. And now they're ready to move forward and they're pretty decisive and they know what to do. And they know they've they've either saved up for it or they're ready to go and, or they're in a good place with work where they can take time off. Like they've done their homework. And I love those patients because I love helping them. Of course, of course. Oh, look, thank you so much. It's just been so great. So, so guys, if you want to check out the website, do go and have a look because there's some, uh, like I'm just loving the mind-blowing pictures. I'll probably be on there for another hour when I get off with you. <laughs> but thank <laughs> you so much for joining us today. Sure. And then you can also follow me if you have any questions at Dr. Sean Paul, D-R-S-E-A-N-P-A-U-L on Instagram. And like um, like mentioned before by Trisha. Go to our website. You can always ask us questions or send inquiries. We have patients that are international and all over the United States. So we're always happy to help. Amazing. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll add a, a link to um, the 
to the blog post because we usually put it on the on the Transforming Bodies podcast website as well. So I have a link there as well. So people have got it when they have a read. Beautiful. Well, thank awesome. you so much. Thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah. Have a great day or night. You're in. <laughs> thank you so much. Got a burning question for Trish? Message her on Instagram at Transforming Bodies or join the 12,000 plus people in the Facebook group Plastic Surgery Support Forum for Aussie Chicks.